0: It's another blessing, isn't it, that we have been granted the opportunity this Lord's Day morning to come together as we are, to appreciate the sweetness of service to the Lord and the blessing that is ours, of course, of worship. But more importantly than that, it's the worship that God would desire and what He's described in His Word. And we're certainly pleased that we have been granted the health and the other features of life that permitted us to come together today for this purpose. Surely as we come to this particular lesson today, you've already been able to tell from the title that at least a part of it will be a continuation of what we have attempted to do one Sunday or one of the lessons of each month this year, giving some thought to what at least can be regarded by some as controversial. Today as we give thought to that, one church and somewhat about shopping Now you may wonder what connection will there be between matters such as that, and yet we will develop that at the right time as we arrive at certain portions of our our lesson today. This next slide will be just a rather gentle introduction to some of the issues upon which we can proceed with our discussion today. The character of the church. I realize as the Word of God makes statements about the church, we are in a position to note how special it is in the eye of God. The church is certainly no trivial, no minor organization, but rather it has within it the fullness of what was appreciated by the God of heaven from all eternity. You may notice the first two statements on that slide. That does lead me to again speak somewhat about these controversies. The very matter of controversy can sometimes bring an element of tarnish, an element of marring because you and I want to see purity and connected to no controversy. But yet among those that would strive to serve the Lord, there will always be things connected to what men may regard as controversial. And so far during the course of this year, I've just highlighted a few of those we've seen. What role does baptism have? What about the character of the Genesis record of creation? What about the features connected with the drawing fellowship? You can list those and so many others and we have attempted to look at those various matters and we'll continue this particular theme, for at least one of the lessons each of our months. But today, what about the church? How many churches are there? And what are some connected identities, features if you please, about that church? All of that we shall at least rehearse today as we allow the Bible to be our guide. May I point out in great thanksgiving how that the Bible does provide us these answers. It is not that we are resting upon opinion, speculation, or other kind of what might be regarded as endeavor, but rather thankfully the Word of God has much to say about this. It is with that said, what about this next slide? The title of which is One Church. As I begin this slide, though, why don't I highlight somewhat of those matters of confusion. Again, could I use the word controversy? Near the top of that slide, could I point out to you a statistic maintained, a statistic that read like this. The Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary maintains a tally of those particular organizations regarded by men as churches and of course keeps a tally of the associations of them as well as certain features connected to what they teach and practice. As of the first day in October 2013, that particular organization, which mind you is soon to be 10 years old at this point, regarded the current tally of Christian organizations at a little bit less than 45,000 worldwide. That means, again, that 45,000 distinctly recognized as different organizations, regarded as Christian, existed according to their tally. Now, as of today, that number is bound to be considerably higher than that. But the point still remains that whether you regard it according to that particular organization's number or whether you use the number of the World Christian Encyclopedia, whose number is still in excess of 40,000, the conclusion is the same. Upwards of 40,000 or more organizations that call themselves the church, they claim to follow the same book, they claim to follow the same Lord, They claim to be headed to the same place, namely heaven. And they claim to have the very words that they could use as instruction to encourage anybody to be a faithful and devoted servant to the God of heaven. And all the while, they are nonetheless recognized as distinct. What one teaches in practice is quite different than another. What another one sets forward as the plan of salvation may differ markedly from what another one might proclaim. There are some of that number that say that once you're saved, you're always saved. But yet others say that's absolutely not true. There are many in that number who would well have a mechanical instrument of music in worship, and others would say absolutely not. There are others who would say that baptism is required in order to be saved, and others of that number would say no, it's not. By now you get the idea. Such a wide array of dispositions and a wide array of presentations, and yet they all claim to be the church of the Lord. Is it any wonder, then, that there could be such confusion in the mind of an honest seeker of truth? What if there were a person in a community who earnestly, due to some particular motivation, had desired, I want to be a part of the church of which I find God's approval, but yet if I go to this one, they tell me one thing. If I ask about this one, they tell me something rather different. Which one is right? And how do I know? Could you and I not take the initial observation? Logically, we appreciate that there's a great consideration taking place here. If there are two of them that differ in doctrine, then it has to be that at least one of them is wrong. At least one of them, and perhaps both of them. It might well then be that you and I could then thankfully open the Word of God to a point of refreshment and read verses of which you and I will consider for the next few moments. Would you perhaps start with Ephesians 4 verse number 4 with me? In that rather famous and well-known passage, the Apostle Paul directing inspired information to the church at Ephesus, it was to them, he said, there is one body and one spirit even as you are called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And you may notice that in the presentation of these seven characteristics, these seven truths, it was said there that there is one of each one of them, and there can be no misunderstanding of the number one. We understand what the number one signifies. It identifies absolute uniqueness. There is not another like it. There's one. And you may appreciate that in that list, there were some rather well-known matters. For instance, there is one Lord. There surely is no disagreement. There surely is no controversy connected to that. The Lord Jesus Christ, as He is often referenced in the pages of the Bible, the one Lord is none other than the Christ, the Messiah. But by the same token, one Spirit, Ephesians 4.4, We understand well the character of the Holy Spirit and His efforts toward revealing the very mind of God for us, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 14. But just as surely as the number one is so easily understood there, it seems, though, much more difficult for some to accept in light of some of the other elements of that list. Try this one. How many faiths are there? Paul said, by inspiration, there's one. One faith, no more. Furthermore, how many baptisms are there? One and no more. But, of course, for our discussion today, what about the very first element in the list? One body. All of the particular study and all of the particular consideration will never change what that statement says. There's one church. You and I are quite well aware of the fact that that word body does relate to the church. For three chapters earlier, Paul identified it that way. And having put all things under his feet, and gave him to be a head to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And thus, there was highlighted for us this truth that the body is the church, and to say that there's one body is to say that there's one church the statement of one church is not only found here but certainly highlighted in a host of other passages as well i've invited you to look for instance at colossians 1:18 as another consideration he is the head of the body the church now there again it's highlighted in such beautiful pristine language the body is the church and thus to say that there's one of them is to highlight the absolute uniqueness Aren't you and I thus blessed for a revelation such as this? We need not languish in confusion as far as identifying it. Isn't it again a very powerful observation that the Word of God has revealed to us so many of the characteristics of that body? Characteristics which might include the following. When was it established? You and I know the answer to that. For the Lord's church, it was the first Pentecost following the resurrection of the Lord, as recorded in Acts 2, verses 1 and following. And thus, any religious organization that does not trace its origin to the first Pentecost following the resurrection of the Lord cannot possibly be the church of the Lord. As far as the place of establishment, that too is highlighted for us. It was said to be Jerusalem, not only by Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 2 and in Micah chapter 4, but also asserted in reality by by no less than Jesus himself. That's just a two of a whole host of additional characteristics that might be named. But what if we think of it from two other standpoints, one of which is this. I've asked you to think about the statements of the Lord in Matthew the 16th chapter. Wasn't it true that to Peter Jesus said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. When Jesus made that statement, you and I would quickly recognize that the church had not yet been established. He said, I will build, not that I have built. And thus, there was some time in the future from that moment wherein that church would be established. And yet, as Jesus affirmed it there, He pointed out that He would be the one to build it. It would not be men. And He furthermore highlighted that it would belong to Him. He said, it's mine. There's no man anywhere that has the authority, delegated or otherwise, that he could start his own church, that he can in fact choose to name it after himself, that he can borrow the features characteristic of anything that men may suppose concerning it. In Colossians 3 verse 17, we have this rather definitive statement, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. And thus the church simply seeks to operate by the authority of heaven making use of what Jesus Himself taught and bequeathed to those that were his, his believers. And in so doing, they simply strive to do that which He's commanded with a proper authority. So far as you and I have noted, then, this one church, surely that text of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, has again a much to say about the approach that you and I must take. There, as Paul addressed the church at Corinth, it's a truth you and I have noted more than once, and particularly as we studied on Wednesday evenings that book of 1 Corinthians. We highlighted in it that that book began with the observation of some divisions and party spirit, if you please, in the life and times of the Corinthian church. And it was to them Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And thus Paul insisted to them that they understand that what they were doing was not right. There is no such spirit among those that seek to serve the Lord, because there is to be a unity of what you say, a unity of the doctrine you profess, a unity of the judgment that you pronounce a unity consistent with a togetherness in light of what the Lord taught. Now, as that spirit was not in Corinth at that time, Paul labored to encourage it. In fact, do you recall the questions he asked? Was Paul baptized for you? You and I realize the authority consistent with the baptism is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19. And so it is. People aren't baptized in the name of a man or at least they shouldn't be, and they aren't baptized or otherwise prompted in their belief by the, by the behaviors of others. Surely in that way, you and I can close then that slide by saying this. Over 40,000 recognized organizations that call themselves the church, and yet the Bible says there's one. That clearly means that some of them must not be right. It clearly means that, in fact, a large number of them must not be consistent with the teaching of the Bible. That does raise the questions at the bottom of that slide. Isn't that exactly what the Lord had taught and what other inspired writers asserted? As you and I close that slide then, shouldn't it be a careful matter for us to ever ensure that we uplift and uphold and follow completely that organization which is the Lord's church? That leads me to ask several questions which this next slide will continue to ask before us. So today there are many instances in which an individual or perhaps a family has a desire to associate with or be a part of a particular religious organization. They understand the significance of the concept of the church and thus they proceed to ask questions to help them make determination of which one of these will I choose to associate with? Sometimes the questions that are asked are interesting. Sometimes the questions might be, does that church have a softball league? Do they have a volleyball team? Do they have a touch football league? You get the idea. Other times questions may be pointed in a direction such as this, do they have a gymnasium? Is it the case that they offer after-school programs for my children that are athletic in character? Is it the case that they, by the appreciation of their facility, has a requirement in light of things they can offer for my children's expression in music or craft work? Maybe other questions could be directed along this line. Does the worship end in no more than 20 minutes? so I can be the first ones to the restaurant? Does the Sunday evening worship, is it required that I even be there? I have a lot to do for work on Monday. I don't want to have to, I don't want them to suppose that they expect me to actually be there. Well, those are just some of the questions that might well cross the mind of some, but I have even other ones. The worship, is it rather pleasant? Is it rather uplifting with a nice rhythm involved in it? And surely the preacher can't preach more than about 15 minutes. By this point, you begin to see a lot of questions might be asked in the interest of shopping to find that church of which that family is going to be a part. Surely, as you look near the bottom of that slide, though, you and I ought to note, are those wise questions? Should those be the prompting ones that would allow a final determination? After all, what is the church? The actual Greek word that appears as the translated word church is the word ekklesia. It literally means those called out of. Those called out of the world into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That is to say, they formerly were prompted by their leader, who was the devil, but they've come out of that arrangement, and they are now beautifully a part of that covenant arrangement that God has made with those who obey through His Son the nature of the Son's message called the gospel. And that's what the church is. It is an organization whose thrust is entirely spiritual in nature, calling people away from sin, calling them away from the clutches of the devil, and into a lifestyle that is moving toward an eternal fate of doom, and into a saved relationship. Do we not read in Acts 2:47, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. And so Jesus adds to the church those that are saved. There are many things about the particulars of that person's life, which thus are not... There, Were they old? Were they young? Were they highly educated or not? Were they rather well-to-do in the matters of this world? Or were they rather impoverished? Well, none of that is listed. And the fact is, the gospel message is extended to all of us, and all in all of those categories can choose, thankfully, to obey the gospel and be a part of that sweet body of the saved. You may notice as you come near the bottom of that slide that the order of New Testament description in terms of that body we call the church does not seem in any way to be focused upon what we would call an entertainment value. In fact, when you and I read verses such as John 4 verse 24, that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth that there is something to be said about the characteristic pair of the words that the Lord used. To worship in spirit is to worship with the appreciation of one's mental engagement and understanding that worship is not, nor has it ever been, a passive activity. I don't just come and watch somebody else do it. We each must be involved as we each sing with the spirit and we sing with the understanding, 1 Corinthians fourteen fifteen we mentally engage in the attitude of prayer such that we're able to say amen at the conclusion of it. First Corinthians 14, verses 14 and following. Furthermore, when you and I give thought to the Word of God, we understand the teaching is, of course, that which emanates from God, and we desire to understand and rightly divide it under the banner of 2 Timothy 2.15. As far as the other acts of worship, you and I recognize that we give as we have been prospered. And in so doing, we have made a purposeful appreciation of that to which we have prospered, and we desire to return to God a portion correspondent to that. And certainly in the participation and the observation of the Lord's Supper, we understand there that mentally our engagement must be keen, for didn't Paul say that anybody who eats or drinks unworthily, eats or drinks damnation to his soul? In 1 Corinthians 11, Verses 27 and following. And thus we come looking forward to our participation, desirous of offering our individual worship, joining collective character to the same for others, to the great God of heaven who thrills in it. God loves for those who are His children to offer worship to Him. How often in the Old Testament, in fact, do we see His displeasure When the children of Israel would try to mingle the true worship which He had revealed to them with the worship to Baal and the worship to various other supposed idols, God detested it, and He would not have anything to do with it. Is it any wonder, as you and I close that slide, that we thus appreciate we don't assemble for the purpose, directed in light of the matter of what suits my preferences? You and I know our individual preferences would likely be as many as there are individuals here. But yet, our desire is for God's preference and to offer our worship, you see, to Him. These questions, you see, I think we would agree ought not be the leading questions for determining which kind of body I might choose to worship with my family. What about additional questions, though? This next slide lists some additional ones that i would at least offer as being much higher quality questions for example does this church value the word of god as the sole authority in matters of worshiping and service to god what is their viewpoint towards scripture do they look upon it with great respect and highness and as the singular presentation of what is the will of god after all, isn't it true that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works. In essence, for that group of people, is this Bible more or less just a secondary byword? Do they really elevate their ideas above the Word of God? But what about a second question? is that group of people, is that church committed absolutely to the authority of the Christ, desiring to have His approval for that which they do, that which they preach, the doctrine that they practice? After all, we are admonished in Titus 2 verse 1 to give thought to sound doctrine. It's not doctrine that otherwise is unsound. A third question, is that church committed to truth? Do they believe the truth exists and... Are they absolutely committed that the Word of God is it? In John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy Word is truth. You can begin to see these kind of questions are very different than the ones that were just noted on the previous slide. This matter connected to authority. This matter connected to other particulars which are direct statements of the Word of God. What about that next question? Does that organization, does that church value the souls of individuals and desire to appropriately evangelize and edify and to do that which would be the bidding of the Lord? You and I well remember that Jesus Himself said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And thus, they aren't given overwhelmingly to material matters. Now, that's important. And they do use their resources to bring about those things, but their first priority must be that which is connected to the vitality of the church in terms of the souls of people. The next thing on that slide is this. Those questions, I think we would each agree, are very different, very much directed in a different way to what those earlier ones were as a person then were to seek to do some shopping for the church, could you and I not hope that they might have a tendency to give interest to these kind of questions as opposed to only the former ones, as opposed to only those that might be directed otherwise? May I say these kind of questions should be the first set that that, that in fact would be asked. You and I realize the very nature of the church, the ecclesia of God, was a part of His eternal plan as presented to us in Ephesians 3, verses 10 and following, to the intent that now, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul thus pointed out that the church was a part of the eternal plan of God. Long before Adam and Eve did what they did, Long before even the creation of Genesis chapter 1, God already knew that there was going to be a church. There was going to be His church. And that it would be the critical organization for the salvation of the human family. Today we're blessed, so honored to be a part of that body. As you and I close that particular slide, it brings us to some more rather rare questions. The first slide was what I would have called poor questions. The second slide, much better questions. The questions on this slide are also very good ones, but they're much more rare. Let's see if we can identify what might well be the rarity connected to them. So as a particular person or family, we're interested in identifying the church. Here's a question. What can I do to help the work of that church? How may I use the skill set that I have in the interest of prompting and moving forward that body of believers? What about the second question? Is that church serious about faithfulness in every way? We mentioned earlier, is it expected of my attendance? The answer should be yes, absolutely. Unless there are circumstances that prevent it. But surely it might be said that that particular organization, again, and a person's involvement in it, what work can I do? What about the third one? Does that particular church expect their members to be involved in the work of that church? After all, you and I realize it isn't merely the elders. They oversee us as a flock. And the elders of a given congregation, of course, do that. The next one, does this church make absolute demand of moral purity? Are they willing to allow individuals to stray off into unfaithfulness and do nothing about it? Or will they in love for that person's poor choice approach them and encourage changes and encourage repentance? You see, the whole idea of the church is this united group of people Who are striving to march in unison to heaven? Not happy for someone to walk out of step? 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. As you and I close that slide, wouldn't you agree? These kind of questions perhaps aren't the top of the list that would often be regarded by those who are in the business of shopping as we've described it today. But yet as the Bible reveals it, how pertinent they are. As we come to this next slide, the last one of our lesson today, we have cast somewhat of a spotlight on the oneness of the Lord's church and some approaches that might be made to it in the light of asking certain questions about it. Our Lord established one church. You and I should never cease to be heartily thankful that we have known about that truth and can obey it from the heart. Romans 6 verse 17 and that you and I in that state can be thus no longer servants of sin, but yet servants of the righteousness which is of God. It could be that someone in this assembly today has arrived at a point in life wherein you would wish to make some changes. Perhaps you've never become a Christian. That is to say, to this point in life, your direction has been such that it's been pointed in a somewhat different direction but maybe you've begun to ponder from the example of others that you cherish that there is something about the way of the Christ. We want you to know, just as the Lord would teach, that belief in Him is required, repentance of sins, confession of His name, and baptism for the remission of your sins. Just as much as the Lord taught that, we would be so happy today to encourage and help you. If you, however, have known that way of life, But perhaps as of today, you have begun to live in a way that's unwise, in a way that's not pleasing in the eyes of Jesus. He was the King that you once professed allegiance to. Don't you want to come back to Him? The King, Lord Jesus, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. If you would wish then to make repentance of those sins, to make confession of them, we'd be delighted to encourage you today to pray along with you. Brother Larry has chosen a song of encouragement. If we could be of some help to you at this particular moment, we would wish to extend that invitation and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.